I want to share with you a story, true story, that a former student of mine told me. I used to teach in a university setting years ago, and this student came up to me and told me this kind of interesting story. So I'll tell it as if I'm her. Her name's Karen. When I was young, about four years old, I had, and still do, an older brother and an older sister, but at that time, when I was four, they hated me. For some reason, they never wanted me around, uh, never wanted to play with me. Well, one day, they put me in a box. And what they said was, if I'd stay in the box and I'd keep real quiet for like an hour, then they'd let me out of the box and they'd play with me the rest of the day and they'd let me choose the games that we'd play. Now, you gotta know, number one, they never let me pick what to play, but number two, they never played with me anyway. So this was like this great incentive for me to go into the box. So they put me in this sturdy cardboard box. They put a blanket in, they give me a sandwich, they give me some bottled drink of something like some orange juice or something, and um, they close the top over me. Well, little did I know that they took packing tape, they sealed the top of the box, they addressed the box to the Army base in Anchorage, Alaska. Now, we lived at the Army base in Oklahoma. They went through my mom's drawer with scissors and paper clips and things in our kitchen, and they found enough stamps to get, I don't know, probably three, four, five dollars worth of stamps plastered on with this address. Then they walked it out to our mailbox right before the mailman came. They knew he came at the same time every day. So what happened was the mail guy comes, and thankfully, he lifts up the box. He's about to take it to the back of his mail truck, which was just, you know, eight paces away. Then he would have driven off. But even though it feels pretty heavy, I'm a four-year-old, he notices that there with all those stamps plastered on there, can't be enough to make the trip to Alaska. So instead of putting it in his truck, he walks it the 50 paces to my house. My mom was home. She knows something's wrong right away. She opens it up, and there I am in the box. So I didn't go to Alaska. Um, and fortunately, later in life, although it took about 20 years, my siblings and I were reconciled. So kind of an interesting story. Hopefully, even though you may have had a dysfunctional family growing up with its own little oddities, hopefully your siblings didn't try to you know, ship you away never to return off to Alaska. So the reason I bring that up is that when I try to imagine how my student Karen must have felt, it reminds me of how the Israelites must have felt when they came back from Babylon. So they come back into the land of Israel. There's no temple. And all of the people that are there don't want the Jews there. So their thought is like, I want you to leave. I want you to get as far away as possible, like Alaska, and I want you never to come back. That's the historical setting, I think, for Psalm 127. So if you don't have your Bibles open, open them up, turn to Psalm 127. I think even though it was written by Solomon centuries before the exile, it's put here in this last part of the whole book of Psalms to encourage Jews as they come back from exile. 
So that's the background, return from exile. Let's zoom out a little farther for a moment, and let's do some review about where these psalms are. We're in a collection of psalms called, again, the Songs of Ascent. There are 15 psalms in a row. We're right in the middle of that collection. They're found toward the end of the book of Psalms. I think you know that. They're called Psalms of Ascent because, as we heard weeks ago when we started this series, uh, the Israelites would sing these as they went to Jerusalem three times a year for a certain feast or festival. So you live in Galilee, you're supposed to travel to Jerusalem and sing these as you go. Why are they called Psalms of Ascent? Well, you're going up in elevation as you get closer to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on several hills. So hence, songs that you sing when you're going up to the temple of God. So that's why the word ascent is there. Uh, Also, by way of review, they're in book five of the book of Psalms, sometimes called the Psalter. So if you didn't know that, the book of Psalms is divided up into five books. Hold your place in Psalm 127. Go back to Psalm 42. No matter what Bible you have, no matter what translation, if you just bought it or if it's 50 years old, at the top of Psalm 42, you're going to see book two. So if you didn't know that, the book of Psalms is divided up into five books. Let me try to give you a real quick overview of those five. They're there for a purpose. They're there intentionally. There's development. Book one has to do with David before he became king. So what happened right before he became king? Well, there's another guy who's king. His name is Saul, and he's trying to kill David. So a lot of psalms of struggling or sorrow or his life being threatened in book one, which is Psalms 1 through 41. Book two is when David becomes king. So, man, we're doing better now. And book two ends with Solomon becoming king. There's still enemies, though, right? David didn't have a completely uh, ease-free reign or rule. People tried to kill him and take his throne. Book three is the low point of the book of Psalms, because in book three, and it's very clear in several Psalms, the Jews get exiled to Babylon. So think of all that involves. The temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is taken, conquered, and the people are taken far, far away. So we can chart this out by looking at ups and downs or peaks and valleys, Uh, book three being the bottom of that chart. In book four, we start getting better because book four is a book in which the Israelites are getting ready to return to the land. The wicked still rule, but they know the end has come to captivity. They're reminded in book four that God himself is their only true and forever king, meaning they don't really need an earthly king. God himself is their king, ultimately. Then we come to the last book, the book that these Songs of Ascent are in, and this is the most positive and forward-looking book. So the Jews are coming back from exile, or they're back already, and they're looking forward to the coming of their Messiah. So after the exile, what happens again? Well, the temple's in shambles. Uh, It took them 20 years just to start rebuilding the temple. And then when they started, it didn't look all that good. 
nothing like in the days of Jesus. And as I said, every nationality that had settled in the land that had kind of come into that vacuum hated the Israelites, wanted them to go back to Babylon. So that's the original background or the historical background to Psalm 127. It's in book five. To whom is book five written to originally? The Jews coming back from exile. There's a lot we can glean from book five because we're waiting for the Messiah, his second coming. Let's do one more introductory item. Let's set Psalm 127 in the context of the Psalms that come right before and after it. So I'm going to expand a little bit on what Ryan mentioned a few weeks ago. There are 15 Psalms here, right? Ryan said a few weeks ago they're grouped in many collections of three each. And each mini collection of three ends in a climax, meaning the third Psalm is a praise Psalm. It's more positive. The first one of each set of three tends to be a lament. What's a lament? That's an older English word that means sorrow or suffering. So that first psalm in any group of three is going to talk about suffering. It's going to talk about exile in Babylon. It's going to talk about a need for deliverance. So the psalmist might cry out to God for deliverance. The second in the group of three is going to be a wisdom psalm. The first is more negative, suffering. Second is going to be kind of neutral. What is a wisdom psalm? It gives advice on how to live your life. Think of the book of Proverbs. Then the third psalm, that climax, is going to be, again, a praise psalm. So this could be a hymn, praising God for who he is. It could be a thanksgiving psalm, thanking him for deliverance. It could be a psalm that talks about the blessings that come from God and how good they are. But it's very positive, forward-looking, and it'll include some element of praise. So let me give you an example of these little collections of three. Psalm 120, that's going back to the beginning of these 15, has this wording. Remember, the first one's going to be a lament. So I'll just read for you some examples of the wording in Psalm 120. We read these things. In my trouble, okay, wow, that's suffering. Deliver my soul, that's a request for deliverance. Woe is me. Boy, that sounds like a lament psalm as well. Psalm 121, here's the second in a group of three. That's going to be the wisdom psalm, the one that's more neutral. Has this wording, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. It's good advice for life. Psalm 122, the third, the final one in that set, which is the praise psalm, has this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We just sang that a few minutes ago. That's an uplifting song, not a song of sorrow or distress. Here's one more piece of evidence, then we'll launch into Psalm 127. If you're looking at those 15 psalms, or you've got one or two pages open to Psalms 120 through 134, the word peace is found in the Songs of Ascent at the very end of several of those collections of three. Psalm 122 ends the first group. If you're looking at that, look at the very last verse. That psalm ends with, may peace be within you, the you meaning Jerusalem. Psalm 125 ends the second group. That ends with, peace be upon Israel. Psalm 128 ends the third group of three. They come at us in waves and cycles. 
Psalm 128 ends with peace be upon Israel. So three times in a row, the third psalm, the praise one, ends with peace. Is that coincidence? Certainly not. The next group of three ends with Psalm 131. That doesn't really have peace, but it has the word hope. Here's how Psalm 131 ends. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And then the final group, the end of the whole collection, Psalm 134 ends with a blessing. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. All right, so we've had a little historical background. Book five is for the Jews coming back from exile to give them hope, to give them encouragement. They don't really have a temple. We can glean a lot from that in our day. Uh, Psalm 127 is in the middle of a trio of psalms. It's the second one of a triad. And hence, it tends to be a wisdom psalm, giving us some advice about life. As the middle psalm, it's not so much positive or negative. It again gives advice. So we've said, written to the exile, it's the middle one of three. We're ready now for Psalm 127. Let me read for you the first two verses, which is really the first half of this short psalm. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, a song of ascents. We saw that at the beginning of each one of these 15, or up to this point. Of Solomon. Put things on pause for a minute there. We haven't seen this before in the songs of ascent. We haven't seen an author's name. Solomon only wrote two psalms in all 150 psalms. So this is going to be kind of significant. We'll go back to that later. So now we're ready to start the psalm itself. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, we really don't need tools for Bible study, like Bible dictionaries and concordances, to get the meaning out of these first two verses. You can get 90% of the meaning by one read-through, the, the read-through that we just did. It's clear Solomon is out to teach. We don't trust in our own efforts, our own dreams, our own passions, our own plans. We trust in the Lord. We can't make our future. The uh, typical high school or graduation our college graduation speech, uh, which we've heard dozens of times, whether our own or attending some friend's graduation, that says, whatever you want, you can do. Just dream it and then see it happen. You can make your future. That's all a crock of nonsense, according to Psalm 127. <laughs> we don't make our own future. God creates and crafts and wills our future. So notice two things about this first half of the psalm. First, there's a balance between two extremes. On the one hand, Solomon does not elevate work and worship work as an end in and of itself. He doesn't say the typical graduation thing. Work is so great, it'll get you wherever you want to go. Just be honest, be sincere, put hard labor in, and you will get your dreams because work is that important. It's that elevated. Solomon doesn't say that. On the other hand, Solomon doesn't say, hey, 
since the Lord is the one who's really going to give you whatever happens in your future, then don't do anything. Kick back, take a nap, let things happen as they will, because the Lord is really the one who does all the work, not you. He doesn't say that. In fact, what Solomon says is precisely the idea that Paul has for us in the book of Philippians. Let me read for you a verse. Don't have to turn there. Uh, you've probably heard this verse before. Let me read it for you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Here's what he's going to say. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Pretty heavy stuff. But Paul does not say work for your own salvation. We don't do that. He says work it out. Paul is saying the very same thing that James says that we saw months ago in the book of James. If there's been a change on the inside, that should, that must work itself out in words and deeds. So Paul says, be about doing that. Don't assume it happens. Work toward it. Persevere. So are we to work? Does Paul say we persevere? Does Paul say we need to obey what Jesus commands? Yes. A thousand times yes. So then, Christian growth or becoming more holy, that's all up to us then, right? No. A thousand times no. How do we know that? Well, let me read for you the next verse. It's such a fantastic counterbalance to verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we work, we persevere, but God is really the one making things happen, making things happen on the eternal or the deep level of life. We work, but God makes things happen. He brings things to life. He brings things to completion. Is that right? Is that accurate? Yes. That's the biblical view. So back to Psalm 127. We're not told by Solomon to stop building, right? We're not told by Solomon to stop watching. We're told to trust in the Lord. The psalmist teaching us that God didn't just create the universe. He sustains it. The psalm reminds us that he doesn't just sustain the universe, but he creates life. And God brings back to life, or he regenerates things that were dead. And God brings to completion the things he starts. Think again of what the book of James says at the end of chapter 4. James says, don't look at tomorrow or the future and say, I am going to do this. What James says is, in essence, you don't make your future, God does. So say, if the Lord wills. Don't make your plans and assume they take place. Bend the knee and acknowledge God as Lord of the universe and Lord of your future. Verse 2, we can handle pretty quick in Psalm 127. Verse 2 is kind of like verse 1, but it's like verse 1 on steroids. Verse 1 might say this, it's possible to build or to watch and ignore or forget about the Lord. Verse 2 comes in and says, it's possible to build or watch and to worry the whole time, to be stressed, to think 
uh, from before the sun comes up till well after it goes down. I can't sit. I can't rest. If I don't take care of this, things will fall apart around me. It's all up to me to make things happen. Solomon says some people live their lives in that kind of anxiety. But Solomon says a symbolism of what God wants to give us is rest or sleep. Remember that Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, almost all of it. So there's a great cross-reference to this in a whole chapter in Proverbs. We won't read it, but I recommend it to you for later today or this week. And it's Proverbs chapter 3. The first 20, 22, 23 verses of Proverbs chapter 3 says basically this. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in the Lord. And then, remember, same author, Solomon, writing Proverbs 3, as the author that wrote this psalm. Solomon says this, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 24. He says, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. But you've got to read that verse, verse 24, after you've read all the rest of chapter 3, in which he says, trust in the Lord, not your own understanding. So this first half of the psalm, what's the application for those Jews coming back from Babylon? Remember again, Solomon wrote the psalm hundreds of years before the exile. So someone is collecting this in book 5, after the exile, last book of the book of Psalms, and he's putting this psalm there. Or maybe it was sung in the days of the kings as they went up to Jerusalem, and now it has new meaning for the Jews who don't have a temple to walk up to. When you read the name of Solomon, if you're an Israelite, you're going to think of two things. First, you're going to think of the book of Proverbs and all the wisdom that he wrote. And you're going to think, man, I wonder if this psalm is going to have a wisdom feel to it because I've heard by Solomon. You'd be right. It does. Second, if you heard the name Solomon, you would think of the temple, the house of the Lord. Why would you think that right away, even before ever getting to the psalm? Well, Ryan's brought us to this chapter before in the last few years and has even reminded us it's one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. The chapter is 2 Samuel chapter 7. In that chapter, we read about Davidic kingship. And part of that chapter is David saying to God, will you let me build a house for your name? And the Lord replies and says, no, it'll be for your son to build a house for my name. You've got the word house repeatedly throughout that chapter. So who do you associate with the house of the Lord? What king? Not David, not Hezekiah, not Josiah, Solomon. So you hear his name at the start of this psalm, you're going to think, oh, I bet you this is going to be about the temple. So let's read that first verse again and try to think of it as if we were Israelites. Psalm 127, just verse 1. A song of ascents of Solomon, unless the Lord builds the house. So if you're an Israelite, you're thinking, oh, this is going to be about the temple because I know House Solomon, real close together, it's got to be about the temple. However, when you read through the other verses, we don't have parallels or synonyms to the word house that would clearly point us to the temple. There is a word in Hebrew for temple that is different than house. We don't have it. 
You don't see in your English the word temple. We don't have holy of holies. We don't have Zion, often a synonym for the temple. We don't have any of that. So as you read on, what you're going to conclude as you read the whole psalm is that this is not the same house. I thought it was the temple, and it isn't. Solomon is talking about a different house. Because we read about a house, and what comes after that, a city, and what comes after that, children. In fact, the word house in Hebrew could mean three different things. Probably has a broader area of meaning than our word house, although our word house can have several different meanings. In Hebrew, a house could mean the temple. We saw that in 2 Samuel 7, or my review of 2 Samuel 7. Second, it could mean a home, which is the usual meaning we have in our language. So a house, an apartment, a condo, a dwelling that we live in. Third, it could mean what we call a household, which is the people living in the house. It can mean those three things. We'll put that kind of on hold because Solomon might be talking about all three, but the point is he's not directing us to a physical, literal temple or he'd use more temple terminology. We're ready now for the second half of the psalm, starting at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Now, this seems like a real different topic. We've talked about work for two verses, and now we're talking about children. Kind of seems like Solomon is just pulling from two completely different areas. But remember that for Jews returning from exile, these two things would be of primary importance. Your home and all that that means and your children. So we're going to start this second half of the psalm with a word study on what I think is the most important word in these three verses. It's the word heritage. You might have a translation that has inheritance, but we'll go with the ESV's heritage in verse 3. Verse 3 again, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Main thing we're going to note here is that this is not the same heritage that the Jews were used to talking about. It's a very different heritage. The word is pretty loaded with meaning. Before the time of David, the word had three meanings, kind of like house in Hebrew had three meanings, heritage had three meanings. First, over 95% of the time, heritage was used of the land of Israel. So actual earth, the land of Canaan. In fact, we read in Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Joshua, dozens upon dozens of times in which heritage is land. That's the heritage God gives to the sons of Israel. Second, a few times the word means the temple, which is kind of a special part of the land, Zion, a hill, and the building that was built on it. So sometimes that's the heritage given to the sons of Israel. And third, a few times it's the people of Israel. They are God's inheritance or God's heritage. But again, 95% of the time plus, and we're talking dozens and dozens of times, not three or four or 10 or a dozen, it's the land. That's really the significance this word has. So we've got those three things, land, temple, or Israel. 
Remember the historical background of this psalm, at least placed in book five? It's the Jews coming back from exile. So what does this say to them? It's pretty radical and pretty different than what they would expect with the word heritage. It says this. Children are your heritage. Your heritage is not the land. You're used to that being the meaning of this word, but your heritage, Israelites coming back into the land, is not the land. It's not a literal temple of stone and wood. Your heritage is your children. And then these verses go on to say a couple things about children. Using this word picture of an arrow. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Who's the warrior? The parent. What does an arrow do? Man, an arrow kills. It destroys. Uh, On the one hand, an arrow is used for defense. It's a very great defensive weapon. Um, In my younger days, I did archery for a while and loved studying about it because I like reading about history. And I tell you this, uh, even bows made without the modern contraptions of pulleys and gears. So think of an English longbow in the Middle Ages. Uh, That could shoot and effectively kill a person easily within 200 yards. So if you've got a bow, a stronger bow, and I'm your enemy, you've got a pretty good means of defense. I'm not going to get within three football fields of you. I'm staying away. But more than that, arrows are offensive weapons. When you think of defensive weapons, you really think of things like a shield or a helmet as an item for defense. Arrows are really more offensive. They're there to kill and they're there to destroy. So our conclusion here with the symbolism is children do something very active in Psalm 127. They're not passive. They're very active. Uh, That something means they're engaged in warfare. It's something they do together. There isn't one arrow. There's a group of them. And it is something they do for their father. So first, a little talk about arrows. Second, Here's the second question I've got looking over these verses. When the father's quiver is full, that's one line of Hebrew, of poetry. What's the parallel line? What's the second line that comes in after that? The parallel line is that he, the father, is not put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the city gate. So here's the picture. Enemies are attacking a city. They come up to the gate. A father meets them. The enemies say this, surrender your city. If you don't surrender, we conquer the city. We kill you and your wife and your kids. In the psalm, what does the father say in response to that? What are we supposed to imagine him saying? He basically says with comfort and calmness to his enemies, bring it. That's what he says, bring it. And he knows with confidence that a day later, he's not going to look back on that phrase with regret. He won't be embarrassed. He won't be ashamed. Because the sons are active. They fight. They fight together. They fight for their father. The word enemy or enemies, so singular or plural, the word in Hebrew, occurs here in the book of Psalms, this word we've got at the very end of Psalm 127. It occurs in the whole book of Psalms much, much more than any other book in the Bible. So 
a total of 73 times we read about enemies. So the book of Psalms is very much a book about a king who's really God, his kingdom, and a kingdom that is at war on this earth. Eugene Peterson has a great paraphrase of the last part of this verse 5. Here's how Peterson paraphrases it. Your enemies don't stand a chance against you. You'll sweep them right off your doorstep. So let's start wrapping things up. The psalm talks about two things, a house and a heritage. But they're not the same house as the house associated with Solomon before the exile, and it's certainly not the same heritage that they were used to reading about in their Bible. There are two great parallels when we think of those terms, house and family or heritage in the New Testament. So, meaning there's a spiritual house or a temple in the New Testament, and there's a spiritual family. So let's close looking at each one of those. The temple first. If you've been around here long enough, you've heard Ryan mention 2 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 clearly, explicitly says we, believers, are a temple that God is building up for his presence. What you may not know is that there are dozens of other places where maybe not as explicitly, but implicitly, kind of in an, in a, in an implied way or symbolic way, we've got that same imagery. Let me give you just one example. The example is in the book of Romans. So you might not see this reading through the whole book of Romans, that there's temple terminology in Romans. Let me point out a few of them. Paul says in the book of Romans that he has a priestly duty. Oh, that sounds like 1 Peter when he talks about all believers being priests. Paul says he's got a priestly duty. Then in the second part of Romans, Paul says that the preaching of the gospel is a foundation upon which he builds. The word for foundation is the Greek word themelios, and it's the word used repeatedly for the foundation of the temple. Okay, that's kind of interesting. There's temple pictured, pictured in the book of Romans, and the spiritual equivalent is the gospel that lays the foundation for this temple that God is building. In Romans 14, Paul says that we should seek what is good for the mutual upbuilding of one another. That's what the Greek word literally means. It's got the word house in it. We see it in our translations as edify in Romans chapter 14, verse 19. But the word again is literally upbuilding that we do for one another. One more example, which I think you'll recognize, the climax of the whole book of Romans is chapter 12, not the last chapter. Many of you have memorized, I'm guessing, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. That's the climax of the whole book. That's what the gospel leads to. Well, what does verse 1 say? Verse 1 says that there are sacrifices. Wow, if there are sacrifices, there's a temple. Are these literal sacrifices of animals? No, not by any means. It's you and I that are the sacrifices, and we sacrifice for the Lord not by suicide or killing ourselves. We present our bodies as living sacrifices. Sacrifices implies a temple. So what happens in Romans happens in a dozen other places in the New Testament. If you read carefully, you'll see in symbolic form and kind of implied form what Peter says very explicitly and clearly in 1 Peter. So as believers, we're temple builders and we're priests, all of us. 
Okay, so temple is big in the New Testament. Not a physical temple, but a spiritual one, a new kind of house. Maybe one that encompasses all three of those meanings of house in Hebrew. That the temple we build, or that God builds using us, is a temple like Solomon's temple, in some sense. It's a home for us, and it's a household or people in the home. So we're done with temple. Let's talk family in the New Testament. One author counted how many times in the 13 letters of Paul we come across terms for family, which means what? Father, son, child, children, brother, sister, brethren, any of those would qualify. So either us as a family, the church, or we as sons and daughters of God himself, which is really kind of the same thing. He thought it would take him 10 minutes, that he'd have one or two dozen instances. It took him over two hours because he came up with over 250 instances in Paul's letters where he mentioned the church as a family. The most common, the most dominant word picture for us as believers in the New Testament is brothers and sisters, sons of God, family images. Even the description of how the church operates, as told to us in the New Testament, kind of pulls from both house and family images. We think of the leaders in a church as pastors. That's not a household term or a family term, that's an agricultural term. A pastor is somebody who shepherds sheep. So pastor thinks shepherd. But there's a synonym to that in the New Testament. Pastors are called something different, same office, same person, and that is an overseer. An overseer pulls from the secular world, not the religious world. An overseer was part of a larger house, a bigger house. An extended family lives in the house. There's an owner in the New Testament, the owner's God, but the owner has an overseer or overseers. And these are really administrators. There's a second office in a physical, literal home, a bigger home again with an extended family, and that guy's called a deacon. Deacon means servant. But don't think of a slave uh, that is maybe scrubbing floors or scooping up cow poop in the barn or something like that. A deacon was a, an agent, a manager of part of the house. So you could have a deacon who's an agent for the owner that's in charge of the food, meaning what? He orders the food and he hires the cook and maybe one or two waiters. So he's in charge of the food, something practical. Or a deacon could be a person that, a person that runs part of the business that helps to run the household. But you've got those two offices, an overseer or overseers. It's a bigger house, overseers. And then you've got deacons that are agents. So you see how neat that is? It pulls from the house metaphor or terminology, and it pulls from the family, this extended family living in one household as well. Very, very different, this idea of the church as family than what we see in our culture, at least in this country. Here's how one author, I think this is such a great quote, such good wording, um, that describes how our culture views individuals and families. Here's what one author wrote. Social scientists have a label for the pervasive cultural orientation of modern American society, this kind of society that makes it so difficult for us to stay connected and grow together in community with one another. They call it radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. 
We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal preference ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for instance, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are far more important than the long-term health of the group. So we do this. We leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. How true is that? Man, I wish we could say at Desert Springs we never had people that leave and withdraw when things get rough, but every church does. And part of that is what culture teaches us. Probably a much bigger part of that is the sinfulness within ourselves. But culture comes along here in North America and affirms that, even encourages it. But we, in the New Testament, are temple builders and priests, and we have a new family, one that repulses at its gates the very forces of hell. Like the Jews that came back from Babylon, we don't have much as Christians in this world. In fact, we have a lot more in our country than other Christians do. And we certainly have enemies worldwide. For us here in the States in 2016, we don't face much in terms of physical persecution. But consider this. For 90% of church history since the days of Jesus, Christians have been persecuted. And in all of that time, over half of the world geographically is hostile to Christians, even in our day. So we have Christians physically persecuted where? In India, throughout China, throughout Indonesia, throughout the Middle East, in some countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's a growing thing in continental Europe. So it's easily over half the world, hostile even physically toward Christianity. That's not an exception. We're the exception. Americans in the USA. We're the exception to history, and we're the exception to geography. Christians in general, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, are like the Jews coming back from Babylon. They look for a home and for a people. And that home and people is the church, with Christ as its head. So they, the Jews from Babylon, they looked to physical children and they found more of their identity in the family than in individualism. We should do the same, except our family is the church, as well as our physical family. We should find more of our identity in a group than in ourselves. This is what's going to last for eternity, and this will give us untold joy. The new Jerusalem, the people of God, bound together not by ethnicity, not by economics, but by something from the world's point of view, pretty simple and foolish. From our point of view, something we honor every month and hopefully every day, and that is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. That's what binds us together. That's what gives us a new home. That's what gives us a new family and a new heavenly father. Bow your heads, pray with me, please. I'm gonna start out the prayer with a few lines from an old Danish hymn called Beauty Around Us, because it talks about us being pilgrims. Ages are coming, roll on and vanish. Children shall follow where fathers passed. Never our pilgrim song, joyful and heaven-born, shall cease while time and mountains last.
Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, that we are your sons, we are your quiver of arrows, we are your temple, your priests, your sacrifices, as we wait for the coming of our King, Jesus, to bring new heavens and a new earth. As we wait, we wait with a new weapon called love. We love our enemies, but hell and Satan and death we hate. We are exiles, every person and every race, as we'll sing in a minute, but we look to you, to a place, to a home not of this world, where we will all be as one. We thank you for that, Father. Citizens, as we'll sing, of a kingdom come. So we thank you for our coming king, our great king, our only king, Jesus. Amen.